Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thanks, Kels. You may be seated. Good afternoon, everyone. Yeah, I got to say, like, hearing you guys sing on Sundays is, like, one of my favorite things in the world. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 1 or pull it up on your app. We're in our third uh, week going through the book of Revelation. Um, I will say that if you've missed... Uh, any of the first two, uh, we're going to recommend that you go back and listen to those, especially the first one, because we, we kind of cover some, some key foundations that are, are sort of vital to understanding this particular uh, book. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you know uh, it, it gets kind of crazy at times. Uh, it can be one of the most misunderstood books of the Bible. And so we're going to recommend that uh, if you haven't already uh, listened to or watched that first sermon, that you go back and do that. But by way of review, I will say this, that that word revelation that we get from this book in the original Greek is, is the word apocalypsis or apocalypse, which, which means unveiling, uncovering. And so it's called that because this book, it unveils, it uncovers what at first seems to be covered up. It exposes to us how things truly are. It's ultimately a letter that was written to suffering Christians in the first century to help unveil for them, expose for them what is actually true in the midst of all the hard stuff they're going through. That all the things that we tend to place our hope in are frail. And that all the things that we tend to go to for comfort are in the end just unsatisfying. John Stark, 
He's a pastor in New York. Uh, he says the book of Revelation is kind of like, it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz, right? Yeah, how many of you have seen the Wizard of Oz? I mean, I don't know how you're not raising your hand, right? Like, who hasn't seen the Wizard of Oz? But you know that in the Wizard of Oz, <laughs> that uh, one of the main characters is this uh, sort of mysterious uh, wizard figure, right? This giant floating head, and he appears to be powerful. He appears to be in control, that he has the power to give a heart or a brain or, or provide a way home for Dorothy. But in the end, you see that behind the curtain isn't a giant floating wizard head, but this really sorry excuse of a man who can't really provide any of the things that he promised, any of the things that the main characters longed for and asked for and dreamed for. And in the middle of persecution, just experiencing all kinds of hardship and trials and persecution, the early church was going through all kinds of confusion and struggles and pain, and in the middle of our own suffering that we experience today, John, the author of Revelation, seeks to unveil a vision of the real Jesus Christ to show us that the things that we place our hope in, the things that we turn to, to, to give us our dreams, to satisfy our deepest longings, really uh, can't, can't do good in the end. That the most important thing that we need in this life when we endure trials is to have a new vision of the real Jesus Christ unveiled and uncovered for us. So let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and work our way through this afternoon's passage. God, we, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for the book of Revelation. And ask, Holy Spirit, that as we slowly work through these verses, that you would uncover, that you would unveil, a massive and beautiful vision of the real Lord Jesus Christ. And that just like a present being unwraps for the first time, that as we receive the gift of this passage, that we might find uh, just happiness and joy and comfort in it, that we might find our, our real deep longings satisfied in him. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Here's the first point we're gonna look at in this passage, is that the spiritual realities that exist around us, spiritual realities overshadow our present experiences. Spiritual realities overshadow our present experiences. That's just a way of saying that, hey look, what's, what's actually happening the spiritual realities that we can't see apart from God's word, the spiritual realities that we can't see apart from the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to them, those spiritual realities are more powerful, more weighty, they're bigger than whatever present experiences we might be going through. Look at the beginning of verse 9. The Apostle John is writing and he says, I, John, your brother, he's talking to the Christians that are receiving this letter. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. In other words, in the hard stuff, the persecution they're going through. 
your partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now, we're reminded here by the first half of verse 9 that we just read that the book of Revelation is a letter, right? It's written by a man to an audience, to a people who are receiving this. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, he's writing to them, saying who he is. He's writing to people who are in crisis, and John basically says to them, hey, look, I'm with you in this. I am with you. I'm your partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and patient endurance. I'm with you in this. He refers to him as a brother, which is a reminder to us that as Christians, we are united together as a spiritual family. We have a union, a connection, a camaraderie that runs deeper than, than even like our bloodlines. I mean, you, you may or may not spend eternity with your blood family. But to your fellow Christians that are in this room, to your fellow Christians that are streaming online, to your fellow Christians that are worshiping every Lord's Day throughout the world. That's your forever family. He refers to himself as a brother and as a partner of theirs. And he names three things, tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance which is a way of saying, look, I'm a partner with you and I'm also experiencing the hard things that you guys are experiencing in this life. I'm a partner with you in the kingdom and in the patient endurance. Like that's what the Christian life is. You can describe it as patient endurance, just waiting for that final day that Jesus will return. John is on a prison island where he's awaiting death and he says, hey, look, you guys, you're experiencing trouble, so am I. So am I. And look, even though we can't be together, even though I'm away on this island writing to you, like I am with you in this. I'm your brother. I'm your partner in this. You know what those words do for us? Those words that we just read in this verse? This verse confronts our assumptions about a faith that expects comfort. Because we're middle-class suburban Americans, like we want a relationship with Jesus to be all power and no weakness, to be all comfort and no difficulty, to be all blessing with no suffering. But this single verse confronts that kind of Christianity. It confronts a Christianity that only recognizes the triumphs of Christ and not the trials the kingdom of Christ, but without the cross that we pick up. John says, I'm not just a partner with you in the victories of our faith, but also in the hard parts too. And that is exactly what makes this book comforting to us today. That's what makes it realistic to us today is because it is just upfront and honest about the sufferings that we, we go through in spite of our faith. Sometimes we suffer because of our faith. While Revelation is clear about the final victory of Christ and his church, it's also clear in places just like verse 9 about the present trials and sufferings that we're going to go through. And like I just mentioned, often part of our testimony, part of our Christian life is to actually suffer because of Christ. 
This was true in John's own life. You look at the rest of verse 9, he says that, uh, uh, he, he says, uh, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulations and tr- kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And why is John on Patmos, this island? It's kind of like a Medi- first century Mediterranean Alcatraz. It's a prison island. And he's there, it says, on account of, God, of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, the reason that he's there is because the government in control at the time did not want him preaching the gospel. And so he's, he's on Patmos for preaching God's word, for proclaiming the testimony of Jesus. And as a result, he was banished to an island where he would live in exile. It's kind of hard for us in our context to wrap our minds around a situation like that because we don't tend to see that happen in our free country. We don't see that happen in the 21st century. But you need to know that not only can that still happen, it does still happen today in other parts of the world. There's a ministry called the Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, um, I recommend that you do familiarize yourself with it because it's this, this ministry that keeps track of um, just all the areas around the world where, where Christians are being persecuted for their faith. And uh, so I check in on this website every now and then and just kind of pray for different regions and, and, and sometimes they'll tell specific stories. And I was just reading about um, this, this village in, in Laos where these three men got saved by missionaries preaching the gospel to them, and they took the gospel back to their families, and their families got saved, and they started sharing the gospel with others in the village, and um, the authorities found out and threw these men in prison and threatened the families that came to Christ uh, to recant of their faith or they'll receive the same fate. happens today. That's what John was on Patmos for, because of Rome. They didn't want him preaching the gospel. But at the same time, in verse 10, it says that he was in the spirit when he wrote this. Verse 10, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, which is Sunday, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. That's the book of Revelation. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And so John is in the spirit. He hears this divine voice of authority. It says it's like a trumpet, like this, this, this blaring trumpet sound. If you've ever like sat next to or been near a trumpet, right? Like when it's, when it's being played by Ben, you know that the trumpet is loud, it's piercing. And he says he hears this loud voice like a trumpet, which, was saying, which is his way of saying like that this voice was piercing. It was authoritative, it was commanding. And so you've got these two different realities going on at the same time. On one hand, he's exiled to Patmos. Patmos is a picture of the trouble that he's going through. But on the other hand, he's in the spirit, and the spirit is revealing to him a picture of Christ. And for the Christian, both of those realities are true. Both of those realities are true. There's a sense into which 
we are exiles in a land and in a world that has rejected Christ as king. And yet, as Christians, we're also in the spirit, the spirit who wants to give us a fresh vision of the real Jesus. Theologians call this tension living in the now and the not yet. In other words, we live in the now where, where, where death still exists, where disease is still rampant, where, where poverty and, uh, and, and hardship and just hard things still happen to Christians. Yet, as Christians, there's still something about our present reality where we're also living in the not yet. In other words, we still live with the victory that Christ is going to come back for us, that his war has already been won. We live in the now and the not yet. Both of those pictures are true. Both of those pictures are powerful, but only one should be informing the other. I think what happens is a lot of times we get, we get so blindsided and so overcome by the anxieties and the pressures and the struggles and confusions of our present experiences that we lose sight of the spiritual reality, the vision that we need of the real Jesus. You see, the picture of Christ that... John's going to give us informs how we handle the sufferings of this world. John is being instructed with an authoritative voice, with this blaring trumpet voice. And he's told to write these words down so that we can not only hear about what he saw, but so that we can engage our imaginations and see it for ourselves. You see, we live in a world that wants to lift up people as our ultimate hope. And we're obsessed with people. That's why we have tabloids and reality shows and influencers that we all follow. We want to know what athlete is the fastest or the strongest, what personality is the most popular, what celebrity is the most beautiful, what guru would be the most helpful. And in, to varying degrees, there's nothing wrong with being inspired by others in various areas of wisdom and things like that. But when you read the book of Revelation, in the end, you see that in the end, there's no great people. There's just a great God, and we're all just creatures before him. John's saying, look, I'm on Patmos, where Rome wants to give me trouble. They want to snuff out my voice. They want to destroy me. Rome wants to give me trouble, but I'm also in the spirit who wants to show me the victory of Christ and who wants to show you through me the victory of Christ. And so as we read his words, you and I can say, look, I'm in a world that's wasting away, that's causing me trouble, but I'm also in the spirit. I'm also in the spirit who wants to show me more of Christ, the one who's already overcome the world. And with this view of spiritual realities, with this vision of spiritual realities for, of, about Christ and his church, us, we can see how that reality overshadows just the hard things in life that we go through. 
Secondly, in this passage, we see that Christ is our present priest. Now, depending on your religious background, if you have one, I know many of us in this room don't have much of a religious background, but, but those of us that do, when you see that word priest, you, you, you might think of like, uh, like a high church sort of picture of, of, of a priest with like the long robes, somebody who's kind of holier than thou and, and, and apart from us, right? But when the Bible uses the word priest, what it means is somebody who stands in the gap somebody who's a mediator, somebody who pleads on our behalf, somebody who's with us and for us. And in this verse, in the next verse, in verse 12, we see that Christ is our present priest. John says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, it's helpful to know that that in this vision and when he's talking about lampstands and and all these imagery that we're going to read in the next several verses, that this vision is echoing <coughs> and using Old Testament imagery. If you remember uh, from the last couple of weeks, uh, the, the book of Revelation has lots of Old Tef- Testament references scattered throughout it. In fact, there are actually more Old Testament references than actual verses in the entire book of Revelation. Don't worry, though, I got you back. Like, I'm going to point you out to every single one of those. And together, we're going to get a good overview as we go through Revelation of the whole book of the Bible and, uh, or the whole Bible and how it fits together. So, lampstands. <coughs> lampstands were like the ornamental furnishings that were at the center of the Old Testament temple, right? You see, under the Old Covenant that we read about in the Old Testament, God's presence dwelled not in his people, but it dwelled in a temple. Right? That's how things were done in the Old Covenant. God's presence dwelled in the temple at Jerusalem. And that's what made the temple a sacred place. That's what made Jerusalem a sacred city. And no one could go in the temple. No one could go in the temple because that's where the presence of God was. And the idea is, is that if you went into the temple where the unadulterated and unfiltered presence of God was, like, you would just dissolve. You would just burn away because he is so holy and we are so not. And so no one could go into the temple except a high priest who was ordained by God, who was appointed to go in on the Day of Atonement to make sacrifices on behalf of the people. And so basically the high priest would go in, make a sacrifice for the people. Uh, blood would be uh, spilt from an animal sacrifice to sort of symbolize that our sin needed to be paid with the spilling of blood. Needed to be propitiated, needed to be satisfied with the, with the spilling of blood. And so no one could go in except the high priest whose job was on the Day of Atonement to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And in Zechariah 4, the prophet is given this image that someday the entire people of God would be just like the lampstands in the center of the temple. The presence of God would dwell in them. Zechariah says, like, look, there's going to come a day when the Messiah comes where the presence of God is no longer going to be confined to a temple 
but that the pe- people, like all the people of God, the church throughout the world is going to be just like the lampstands in the temple. In other words, God is going to dwell with them. The Bible tells us that when Jesus died, after he took his last breath, then the city of Jerusalem, supernaturally, this giant curtain in the temple tore as a way to signify that the presence of God was breaking out. That the presence of God, the presence of his power would no longer be confined to this temple, but would now break out to the ends of the earth through God's people. And so all of God's people, at the time that John is writing this, were represented by these seven lampstands, by these seven churches. And he's using this image of the lampstands to show them how now, because of Jesus, they have direct access to God. They no longer have to do business with God through a high priest. Jesus does that for them. They have direct access to God because of what Jesus has done for us. He's like the high priest who would stand in the gap for the people, except the sacrifice that he brought was himself. We have access to God through the blood of Jesus, God's son. And because of the gospel, because of the gospel, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then you are so marked by God's presence that you are like a piece of furniture in the inner room of that Old Testament temple. You're like a lampstand in that temple. By the way, you know why else the church is is described as a lampstand? It's because we're called to be a light to the world. That's what it says in Matthew 5 in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, you guys are like a light to the world. Through you, you will push back the darkness. Light will shine through you. Back to Revelation chapter 1, then in verse 13, he says, And in the midst of the lampstands, one who is like a son of man, which is another name for who? Jesus. Jesus referred to himself as a son of man. So he says, in the middle of all these lampstands of this, of this vision that he's having, one like a son of man who's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, which, by the way, that, that was sort of the garb that the high priest would wear in the Old Testament. That's where this priest image comes from. And so he's saying, Jesus is like our high priest who dwells among us. In the middle of the lampstands is Jesus. In the middle of the churches is Jesus. In the middle of the churches gathered, just like we are this afternoon. I almost said morning. Just like we are this afternoon is Jesus. You know why that's huge? Because it tells us that instead of people having to make their way up to God, God has condescended down to us. He's descended down to us. Jesus is God with us. That's why we sing songs with that phrase, God with us. And it says that he has a long robe and a golden sash. He's got priestly garments. He's really, John is really driving this point home that Jesus is the priest who pleads on our behalf. (coughs) And he's the priest who dwells among us. This is all part of the unveiling that John wants us to see, that the Spirit wants us to see. John is giving a picture of true reality. In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the hard stuff that we go through as we're living in the now and the not yet, 
We are the lampstands and Jesus is right there in the middle of us. In the middle of God's people experiencing hard things, our high priest is right there with us. He's right there with us and he's caring for us and we are not alone. And yes, in a sense, we read in, in, in Revelation and other places that yes, there's a sense in which Jesus is going to come in the clouds, but there's also a sense in which he is here, right here with us, like the high priest among the lampstands. And why does he want us to know that? Why is that important for this vision of the real Jesus Christ? It's so that we can have eyes to see his presence so that we can have our spiritual eyes open to see his action among us. Like, wouldn't that change the way that you live? Wouldn't that change the way that you suffer? Wouldn't that change the way that you hope, the way that you pray, the way that you love others, the way that you respond <laughs> to family and friends who don't get the decisions that you make in light of your faith? Jesus is present. He's near, he's present, he's with us, and he's for us, just like the high priest. And John wants us to see Christ with us clearly. Number three, we see that Christ is also an unshakable king. He's not only our present priest, but he's an unshakable king. Read verse 14 and 15 with me. It says, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. <clears throat> his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like this roar of many waters. That's, like a, that's not a normal picture of a dude, right? I want you to picture it, though. <laughs> I want you to picture just the sheer power of this image. Oscar and Earl and I have this uh, old mentor <coughs> who used to, he loved talking about this, ver this voice, about, or, or sorry, this, this verse, and where it described Jesus' voice as a roar of many waters. And he, he, his name was Casey Jones. Uh, yeah, just like the Ninja Turtles guy. And uh, <clears throat> Casey would talk to us uh, about how, like, he's like, have you ever sat? next to roaring waters? Have you ever sat next to a river or, or, or rapids and hear like roaring waters or like sat under a waterfall? Just, just the sheer power of water, like, like buckets of water just falling by the sheer power of gravity. It's like it's deafening. And then he would go... <sighs> Like that, right? And he would just like drag it on for like 30 seconds, which is a long time when someone's going. <sighs> but, it, it, but it worked, right? You get this picture, this, this, this sound. You can, you, can almost, you can almost hear it. This deafening sound of roaring waters. That's what his voice was like. Like a blazing trumpet, like roaring waters. It came with authority. You see, a lot of the imagery that he's using here in these two verses are, again, echoes from an Old Testament book, from Daniel chapter 2. We talked about this, I think, last week, but in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel was in exile in Babylon working for a king named Nebuchadnezzar. 
Nebuchadnezzar, he's got a dream, and part of his dream is there's this huge, impressive statue, and, and he goes to Daniel, and he's like, man, can you explain and interpret this dream for me? And Daniel interprets the dream, revealing, there's that word, right, unveiling that it's a metaphor for Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, and for the kingdoms of the earth. His kingdom is powerful, that's more powerful than many of the others, but at the base of this statue, at the feet of these, this statue, it was made of clay. And so we've got this beautiful, impressive statue. It's just a sight to see, but it's got this wonky clay base. And the idea, Daniel tells the king, is that no matter how impressive the statue might look because the base is weak, because the base is pliable, it won't be able to withstand the pressure of the world and the weathering of time. And it's not going to last. Eventually, that thing's going to topple over. But in contrast, in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel himself receives a vision of a son of man who has eyes of fire and a face like lightning and feet like bronze. Does that sound familiar? That's from Daniel 10. And here's the thing about a bronze base, is that bronze is a combination of iron and copper mixed together. That's why John talks about bronze that's refined uh, in fire, right? And so bronze was made of iron and copper. And the thing about iron is that it has strength, but it rusts over time. The thing about copper is that it doesn't rust, it doesn't weather over time, but it, it's weak and pliable, right? That's why you can put pennies in those machines and crank it out, and then it, it's got a picture on it, right? Copper is pliable. But a good bronze mixture has the best qualities of both of those things. It's strong, and it doesn't rust. It's strong, and it's beautiful. It's got all the, the luster that makes you go, wow, and it always lasts. And that is just like the reign of King Jesus. That is just like the kingdom of Christ. It's strong, and it always lasts. See, the kingdoms of the world will rise, and the kingdoms of the world will fall. Even if you believe that we, the U.S. of A, America, are the strongest nation in the world today, I mean, we're still only a few hundred years old. I mean, by comparison, many of the early empires of history lasted much longer than that. Like the Roman Empire lasted over 1,000 years. And man, the rate that we're going, like we're barely a drop in the bucket by comparison, and by this rate, like we're weaker today than we were just a few decades ago. And look, that could be a source of great anxiety for you. It's a source of great anxiety to QAnon conspiracists, the Christian nationalists. It could be a source of great anxiety for you, unless you belong to the unshakable king and his unshakable kingdom. You see, 
The big idea in Daniel's vision and in John's vision is that even the most powerful and wealthiest elites of our day, like they can do harm and they can also do good, but the amount of bad that they do will never hinder the future of God's people. And the amount of good that they do can never fulfill our hopes and longings in the way that the king of the cross is supposed to. Every single one of the G8 nations today have faulty clay feet that will not last. Kingdoms rise and fall. Their power is limited. Their foundation is flawed. Their influence is short-lived. But our Lord Jesus Christ, he is the unshakable king of an everlasting kingdom. Number four, we see that Christ is also a fearsome judge. Christ is a fearsome judge. Read verse 16 with me. It says that in, the, in his right hand, in the right hand of the Son of Man, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And again, this is Old Testament prophetic imagery from the book of Daniel. The Son of Man, Jesus, is coming to judge the earth, and this is what he looks like. In Revelation 19, it says that his fiery eyes are for scanning the earth so that he could purify it with his judgment. I think a lot of us, like a lot of modern people today, we find this part of Jesus kind of unsettling. It makes us uncomfortable. Maybe we even consider it distasteful. We like the friend of sinners, Jesus. And he is that. He is the friend of scissors. Of sinners, not scissors. <laughs> he's the friend of sinners, but he's also, the Bible says, the judge of sinners. And look, that might make you uncomfortable, and in a sense, like, that's healthy. If you, like, get really excited about judgment, like, there might, there might be something wrong up there, Right? But we should still realize that there is a reckoning that is coming that Jesus will come to bring. This is Jesus himself appearing to John like this. This is how Jesus chooses to reveal himself to John and, and be, be, like right, right when he says, hey, write this down. Like this is how Jesus appears to John telling him to record these things for us, Jesus unveils himself to be this fierce, fearsome judge who will bring that final judgment. And, and, and this is a vision that he gives to John again and again and again throughout the book of Revelation. And so look, if you're going to believe in Jesus at all, if you want to be a follower of him in any sense of the word, then he wants this to be part of your portrait of him. He doesn't want you to miss that he's also a fearsome judge. And yet here's the curious thing about this, is that the final judgment of Christ is something that he wants his readers to find comfort in. It's something that he wants us to see in order to wash our anxieties away, to bring us comfort. Do you find that strange? Do you find it strange that Jesus wants us to have a clear vision of him as this fearsome judge knowing and, and, and knowing that that's going to bring us comfort? It's because God is promising that his 
judgment, his perfect judgment will come down upon his enemies. His fiery eyes have penetrating sight and nothing can escape his gaze. That means that anyone who acts as though God does not exist or anyone who acts like, like God can't see what I'm doing, God does see. He does see with fiery eyes and he will vindicate himself and he will vindicate his people. And so when God's people who are being oppressed by their enemies, who are being persecuted, who are go enduring suffering at the hands of other people, when his people who are being oppressed by their enemies, they can have hope right now because Christ is the judge who will one day right every wrong. He will one day carry out his perfect justice. His face shines like the sun. Not, not like a nightlight, but like the sun shining at full strength, it says. It's not just beautiful, it's blazing. You can't even look at it. Like, you ever just stare at the sun? Of course you haven't. Like, you can't do that, right? You can't just stare at the sun. Why? Because it's so powerful. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter. He says that... that the, God in Christ and his purity is like the blazing sun. I was, I was reading Tim Keller earlier this week, and, and he um, was telling this story about a, a guy named Tom Skinner, who was a, a local pastor uh, to him. Uh, Tim Keller is a retired pastor in Manhattan, and uh, Tom Skinner was this African-American pastor from Harlan uh, that uh, he learned about. And Tom Skinner... African-American pastor from Harlem. He pastored a church that was like in the thick of the hood. Skinner says that when he was a kid growing up, he'd see these pictures at Sunday school and in like living rooms at, at, at church members. Uh, he'd see these pictures of Jesus with like his perfect skin and his soft gaze and his flowing locks of hair. And he said he'd look at those pictures and go, look, I don't know who that guy is, but he wouldn't last 10 minutes in my neighborhood. But then he says, but this Jesus, the real Jesus, the unveiled Jesus, the fearsome judge Jesus, the question becomes, will that neighborhood last 10 seconds in the presence of this Jesus? I want you to imagine being in John's shoes as he sees this vision of the real Jesus. Imagine, it's Sunday, it's the Lord's Day. Even though he was exiled in Patmos, we imagine he's probably worshiping God set aside this day for worship. And suddenly, he's in the spirit and his conscience is just transported somewhere else. And he sees this vision and he sees someone like the Son of Man Walk through the door looking like this with hair that is as white as wool, with fiery eyes, with a sword-like tongue, with bronze feet, the face like a sun. How do you think you'd respond to a vision like that? Look at how John reacted to this vision of Jesus. Verse 17, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He passes out, he faints. He says, I fell at his 
feet as though I was dead, he just falls down on his face. You see, there's only a few times in all the Bible where, where people got to see this unfiltered vision of God, and the response every single time is almost identical to this. In Genesis 7, 17, it says that Abram fell face down. In the book of Judges, it says that Manoah and his wife fell face down to the ground. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah walks into the temple and he sees a vision of God in all his glory, of Christ in his glory, that fills the temple. And it says that he fell to his face. This is how people in the Bible respond to visions of the real Jesus. I want you to see, though, then how Jesus responds to the buckled over Apostle John. The rest of verse 17, he says, but he, the son of man, laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Isn't that comforting? Fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, even death and hell won't hold me back. Jesus says to John, hey, don't be afraid. It's like, man, that's easy for you to say, right? But Jesus says, no, look, it's me. John, you're my disciple. It's, it's me. Like I died, but behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Don't be afraid. Man, what a beautiful picture of grace. He's face to face with God's holiness. He knows that in his creatureliness, that in his own sinfulness, he can barely even exist before a God like that. And he just passes out. Jesus walks over to him, puts his hand on his shoulder and says, hey, fear not. Don't be afraid. That's a picture of grace. I want to read to you a quote of the beautiful grace in light of Christ's fearsomeness that was written by Herman, Herman Bovink um, a few hundred years ago. Bovink says, this is kind of long, so bear with me. It's beautiful, so trust me, it's worth it. But he says, Christ, speaking of that future day, the final judgment day, he says, Christ will not be ashamed of us. For the one who ascended far above the heavens is the same one who descended to the lowest parts of the earth, tasted death. The one who judges is the son of man who once came to seek and to save the lost like us. Our judge is our savior. He never forgets nor forsakes his people. In full view of the whole world so that all of creation may hear it, he will publicly stand up for his faithful confessors. However despised they may have been in this world, Christ will take their name upon his lips and proclaim it to every ear that they are his. The ones whom he has bought with his own blood and of whom no power in the world or in hell will be able to rob him. As Christ says, so it will be. 
His judgment will apply to the whole of creation. His confession will concern all creation. No one will be able to criticize it. No one will, be, will dare oppose it. His judgment will be exalted above all criticism and will stand high above the judgment of all men and devils. The heavens and the earth and hell and all creation will eternally submit to it. Of greater importance than all of this is that the Father will rest in this work of his son. Just as after creation, God saw that he had made and behold, it was very good. In that same way, at the end of days, he will look down with divine pleasure upon the great work of redemption that Christ accomplished. When the church without spot or wrinkle is set before him and the perfected kingdom has been given to him, then the Father will adopt all of the redeemed of the Son as his own children, inviting them to participate in his communion and enjoy his presence. The public confession on behalf of believers by Christ before his Father, who is in heaven, will be the guarantee of their eternal salvation and glory. Man, what a picture. Christ, the high priest, Christ, the unshakable king, Christ, the fearsome judge. When he publicly confesses at the end of days, these children are mine. Before his father, that will be the guarantee of our eternal salvation and glory. Praise be to him. So how then should we respond to this vision of Christ? How do we respond to this vision of Christ in Revelation 1, verses 9 to 20? First, we should be encouraged to humbly pursue holiness. Humbly pursue holiness. You see, the challenging part is that this image of Christ that we have with the sword and the fire and everything, like we still can have that vision. We can still can experience the fearsomeness of that vision as Christians. It's not just for those who are unbelievers. We can still experience it as Christians. The Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is not just the beginning of repentance, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But for the Christian, we don't experience those things as God's judgment. We experience it as awe, as transformation. We experience it as things that stir our hearts to make much of him. While the presence of Christ relieves our fears when Jesus says, fear not, John still, in a very real way, fell over his dead. The sword still cuts, his sword still cuts our soul. His fiery eyes, knowing that he sees all things, that should still humble us. Solomon taught that through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. David, on the other hand, says that anyone who is content with wicked living does so because there's no fear of God in their eyes. And so we respond to this vision 
of the real, triumphant, victorious Jesus Christ by humbly pursuing holiness. We also respond by showing love and grace to others. How is that? Like, doesn't that seem like a paradox, right? Like, if God is the final judge who's going to smite all of his enemies and all the enemies of his, of his people, like, doesn't that seem like a paradox? You know what a paradox is, right? It's like a contradiction. Bear with me as I tease this out. It's because knowing Jesus is our fearsome judge, knowing that he's our fearsome judge, we are now empowered to show love and grace even to our enemies. Now, why is that? It's because we recognize that we are not the fearsome judge. He is. We don't bring judgment. He does. We don't get even. He does. We don't return evil for evil. He does. Our understanding is limited and flawed and self-centered and selfish and unfair, but God has enough perfect wisdom and fiery insight to be a good and perfect judge. We don't have to be aggressive against others. We don't have to be passive aggressive against others. We don't have to tear people down or give them the cold shoulder. Because Christ does the perfect judging, we can just love them. We can just show grace. We're empowered by the Spirit to be loving and patient and kind as we wait for King Jesus to finally make all those wrong things right in the end. Number three, we respond by worshiping a big Jesus. All right? We worship a big Jesus, a fearsome Jesus. This vision of Jesus, like I just said, is not just for unbelievers to repent. It's also for church people who run the risk of maybe like growing lazy in their worship or lacking reverence and awe and affections in our worship. Don't miss the response of John, like he fell face down. Don't miss the response of Isaiah and Manoah and his wife and Abram, like they fell face down. My concern is that in church today, we say and sing the name of Jesus all the time, again and again and again, but we forget who we're really talking about. (coughs) I want you to just wipe away and erase the portrait of soft Jesus in your head. We're talking about the one who created the universe, the one who the grave could not hold, the one who makes heavenly creatures cower over and sing to him in praise, the one who made John buckle over. I'm concerned that sometimes we're playing church and not actually worshiping Jesus. If we were to see him, the unveiled version of him, with spiritual eyes, which John wants us to have this afternoon, if we were to see the unveiled Jesus, how would that change the way that you pray? How would that change the way that you sing, the way that you worship? We worship a big Jesus, and lastly, We respond by placing 
our hope, placing your hope in the king of the cross and in his kingdom. Our king is a king who went to the cross on our behalf. Our king is the one whose kingdom never fades. In Revelation 4, which we'll, we'll see in, in about a month, we'll see another vision of Christ. Rather than being on the throne of judgment, he's pictured as a lamb who was slain. In other words, the one who sits on the throne of judgment is also the one who received our judgment, the judgment that we deserve because of our wickedness. The cross is the way that Judge Jesus extends his right hand to you and says, fear not. Don't be afraid. It's me. I'm here. I'm reaching out to you. If you belong to Jesus, and I hope you do, if you're someone who calls him your savior, then his fire will heal you rather than consume you. Instead of condemning you, it calls you to worship. Now, our hope as Christians today, as Christians in the now and not yet, our hope lies in the fact that Jesus, the Lamb of God, not only takes our sins away, he also serves as our high priest and is ministering to us right now throughout this life, taking the things away that keep us from true freedom in him. And by his spirit, he makes us whole again. He sanctifies us till the very end. The powers of earth, the kings of earth, have a weak foundation. The pandemic of 2020 to 2021 and all the political strife that it brought us has a faulty bit base. And it will not have the last say. The unshakable, the fearsome, the present Lord Jesus Christ, he will have the last say. And he is our victory. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.